our holy God. It is good to be gathered. It is good that we not only gather and draw encouragement from, from one another, but we gather drawing encouragement from one another primarily to be instructed and to be encouraged from your holy word. And so for the next few moments, would you allow this dying man to preach to dying men and women? And I pray that what would concern us most is not the opinions of others in this room, but it would be the approval of you, the Almighty. God, I ask that you would allow this sermon to strike the flint and that you would be pleased then to light up your people with an awareness of your goodness. Set us ablaze for your glory, for this city to see, for our country to see, for this world to see. And so meet with us now. Help us be satisfied in the sufficiency of our Savior. And help us walk in obedience in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. And God, I pray for those that do not believe and trust you this morning. Would they be overwhelmed with the sense of your goodness and your grace? And so we beg you to allow this sermon to serve those purposes. And we pray this in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. It was in church in Munich that I, Corey Ten Boom, saw him. A balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat with a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the, def to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come to Holland to defeat Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land. And I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from the Hollander's mind. I like to think that our sins, I said, that God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. Solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions asked back after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, in silence, collected their wraps, in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him. Working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw his overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visor cap with skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with harshly overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Oh, Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. 
The man had been a guard at Ravensbrook concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, ma'am. How good is it to know, as you say, that all of our sins are at the bottom of the sea? And I, who spoke so glibly about forgiveness, I fumbled in my pocketbook. Rather than to take his hand, uh, he wouldn't remember me, of course. How could he remember me from the thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop that was swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard there. You wouldn't remember me, but since that time, I have become a Christian. I know God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, ma'am. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and I could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her, sinful, her slow death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. But I knew I had to do it. I knew that message that God forgives is a prior condition to us forgiving others. If you do not forgive men of their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive yours. And still I stood there with a coldness, clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion, I told myself. It's an act of the will. I knew that too. And I knew that the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, was my prayer. Jesus, surely I can lift my hand. I can at least do that much. Would you supply the feeling? And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. Then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother. I cried with all my heart. That was Corey Ten Boom, author of The Hiding Place, Holocaust Survivor. How in the world could Corey forgive this man? This man was not deserving of her forgiveness. When there has been an offense, when there's been a breaking of trust, when there has been an, a heinous evil done to you, it doesn't make sense to forgive and to reconcile. And the world would say, don't do that. Run the other way and take vengeance. It seems better to run and to hide or to take Revenge. But what if there was a power in this world that was more powerful than the, just, than the desire to take justice? What if there was a power that was greater than hate? What if there was a power that could overcome a grudge and even right a wrong? 
I mean, could such a power truly exist? This is what I know personally. I know that grudges can linger on for years. They can tear families and friendships apart. And perhaps you sit here this morning not having spoken to someone else for years or maybe for months, maybe for weeks, and bitterness has overtaken your heart. And it's in the midst of the brokenness of this world, of the pain and the hurt of relational conflict and alienation that God in his wisdom has preserved the small letter in the New Testament that we have undertaken our study in, the small letter of Philemon. And in this small letter, Paul declares a powerful answer that yes, indeed, there is a power that exists that can mend even the most broken of relationships, even the most difficult of alienations. And that power is the gospel. And Paul labors to make sure that Philemon understands that the gospel has indeed changed everything if you have believed in the gospel. That's what we talked about last week, that there's, the gospel isn't merely a wedge in your life that's meant to inform only a certain aspect. No, it's meant to dominate every bit of who we are. We die to self and we live to Christ. And so this is the effect that this small letter is meant to have on us. It's to convince us, those of us who believed, uh, who have believed, that the gospel that we believed in and the spirit who now dwells within us is sufficient to mend brokenness. The gospel is, the power of the gospel is, and the Holy Spirit, he is sufficient to mend brokenness. And we saw last week as, as Paul begins this letter to Philemon, that the gospel does change. It changes our identity. It changes who we are fundamentally. Paul would identify himself as a prisoner. He's a bondservant. He joyfully submits to the rule and the reign of Christ. But he's not just a prisoner. He's also a prisoner with family. Men and women, brothers and sisters who, who aren't merely uh, those who have things in common and so they come together. But no, they now come together under the same heavenly Father. And Paul makes clear that the gospel is indeed thicker than blood. That our unity in Christ is far more sufficient and strong and binding than anything else. But they're not just prisoners and not just family of one another, but also a church, a people who gather together to participate, participate in the riches that are in Christ. That was the sharing in the, the, the sharing of your faith, the fellowship, the participation of our faith together. But we also saw last week how the gospel changes the way we interact with others. The gospel makes us wholly God-centered. I mean, we are completely consumed with, with a view of God. But not just a, a, a view and a, a centeredness on God, but a view and a consideration of others. We saw that. That informs how we pray. It informs the love that we have for the saints. It informs how we are to be a refreshment to others, implying that there would be something that's deficient in others, and we are able to come alongside and to help fill in what has been depleted. And I, 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 I want to make clear, we are only... We are only as refreshing to others 
as we are consistent to point them not to us, but to Christ. And so I pray that we would continue to grow in being a church. I even prayed this week. The challenge last week was think, think of uh, one way in which you can be a refreshment to someone last week. If you failed to follow through with that good thing, you can do it this week. And so I would encourage you to do it this week as well. And what we're going to see next week is that Paul is going to make his request. He's going to make clear what it is that he's asking Philemon to do in verse 17. And so Paul begins by saying the gospel really does. It changes everything. It changes who we are. It changes how we interact with one another. And then he's going to ask Philemon of something in verse 17. Well, our text today answers the question for us, how in the world could Paul make such an audacious request next week? How in the world could he make such a costly request of Philemon? Well, this morning we're going to see three appeals that Paul makes to sort of strengthen his case for why Philemon ought to follow through with his request in verse 17. And so three appeals that will help us understand more of the gospel-rooted groundwork that Paul is intending to overwhelm Philemon so that he's showing that forgiveness is the only appropriate response to this scenario. And so three points this morning. Uh, what I would like to do is mention them and uh, literally I'll just name three appeals But this is what I'm aware of. And even just in praying and prepping this week, I am aware that many of us are in or we're very near strained and broken relationships. And it would be easy to just make the sermon points appeal of, to this and appeal to this and appeal to this. But I want to not only make clear what the appeals are, I want to give you an action step in that appeal. A way in which if, you are, if you're near or, or in a broken relationship this morning, I pray that these sermon points would help us reconcile those relationships. And so that's how we'll walk through our time together. Uh, three points. Paul's appeals that he makes in order to strengthen his support for such an outlandish request that we'll see next week. Number one. There's an appeal to love. An appeal to love. And if I could say it in another way, for those of us that are in or near strained relationships, the point would be this. Act in love. Act in love. Look with me in verses 8 and 9. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper... Yet, for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Paul is so slow to get to the request of this letter. There are 25 verses in this letter, and Paul doesn't ask the request until verse 17. And what Paul makes clear here in this verse is that he had the authority in the first verse 
to command Philemon what to do. And that wasn't an authority that he thought he had. It was sort of uh, given to him or he sort of earned it from others. No, it was a God-given authority, the apostolic authority. If you were to read the book of Acts, what you would find is that the people, Christians in those early days, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. There's a clear set division of apostles and their teaching is what God has so inspired to be the standard and the rule of our faith. And in fact, Paul is so slow to get to the purpose of this letter, we we don't even know why he's writing until verse 10 where we hear Onesimus' name for the first time. Paul is patient He's lovingly patient, in large part because his his desire is not to command Philemon, but to persuade him to act under his own accord. Paul has the confidence. He has the boldness. He says, I have enough confidence. I have enough openness. I have enough boldness in Christ to order you what to do, to do what is right. Every Christian bows their knee in submission to the apostolic authority of the scriptures. Paul has given, uh, Paul has this God-given authority. And this God-given authority allows him to wield the truth in such a way as to where he doesn't have to debate whether or not this truth, this teaching is is true. Or whether, whether or not people should obey it. But yet Paul tenderly and gently appeals to Philemon on the basis of love. Martin Luther has said that a man is more easily drawn than pushed. And Paul models this. Love is foundational to the Christian way of living. If the kingdom of God has an operating system... For all of my tech friends out there, love is the operating system of the kingdom of God. I was just thinking even about, even about uh, maybe less, uh, less clear verses that would accentuate this. Right? We could go to 1 Corinthians 13. We could go to Deuteronomy 6. We could go to Matthew Five. We could, we could go to these different places that would capture what it means to, to love. But just think Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Paul not only makes that clear in Romans 13, but Paul also makes it clear in Galatians 5. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Paul's clear. It is fitting that there is a fitting and proper action to what he's going to ask Philemon to do. 
And before he ever asks for love's sake, he appeals for it. In some ways, by appealing to love, the stakes are raised and the pressure is even greater because Paul is putting to test the depths of Philemon's love and the extent of his understanding of Christian fellowship. If you remember last week, these are things that he commended, verses 5 and verse 7. Paul says, you have been exemplary in this, and I am going to ask you, I'm going to call you up yet again to be exemplary in how you love others. Not only to do what is right, but to do them for the right reasons. This is such a needed word for us. Us who have been called by God as, a, as members of the same church family. We have been called by God to give care to one another, to keep one another from the ditches of sin, and to walk with one another in such a way where we can do Ephesians 4.15, where we know how to speak the truth in love. We would be gravely mistaken to divorce love from truth. It's never loving to withhold truth. And it's never profitable to remove love when speaking truth. And so just on the basis of what we see in Philemon, I want to appeal to us, brothers and sisters, let love be the mark of our labors. Let love be the force and the compelling power of our appeals and our exhortations to one another. May we not, may we not take some sick pleasure in pointing out people's sins that are some way divorced and void of love for them. And may we not, in some sick way, remain unmovable in our sin because of a lack of love for others. A great question to consider in any relational brokenness and a needed question for us to ask ourselves often is what does love require? If you're not in the habit of asking yourself this as it relates to relationships, uh, change that habit. Get in the habit of asking yourselves, what does love require? When there's an opportunity to sort of take a jab or take a shot or kind of jump at someone who has said something irresponsible, said something that's sort of lacking, posted something that you don't agree with, before you respond, just ask, what does love require? I think many of us, myself included, have this picture of Paul that he's this hard-nosed guy who doesn't make many concessions, and yet what we find is he is surprisingly open-handed with things that are not absolute. I mean, just read Romans 14 if you want to be convinced of that. And my, oh my, how that type of trait is needed in our current day. And Paul is this way. He's this way because of love. And then Paul tells Philemon about his imprisonment and his old age in this section. I think it's, it's interesting if you ask yourself, why in the world does Paul make that? I mean, Philemon would have known that Paul had gotten older since the last time they hung out. Philemon would have known that Paul was in prison. So why make that known? I, in, in thinking about that question, I'm, I'm just... One way to look at this is to say Paul is not going to ask Philemon to do anything that he himself is unwilling to do. 
His following Jesus has cost him so much. And Paul's about to lean into Philemon and say, your your following Jesus likewise ought to cost you so much. What a picture of a gospel-transformed life we see that Paul just models for us. Acting in love. The last years of his life. Do you see how Paul is spending the last years of his life? He's giving himself to not only making sure that churches are healthy and the gospel continues to go forth, but he's giving himself, uh, he's giving himself to work for the reconciliation of broken relationships. Brothers and sisters, this is such a good endeavor. It is a hard endeavor, but it is a good and needed endeavor. He's helping a slave be reconciled with his master. I wonder if we give ourselves to the merciful work of seeing others restored to one another. Do we view others' problems as just that's their problem? Or are we happy to use our energies to reflect the gospel? Do we believe, Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, that blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God? And just a healthy practice for the church, one way to spot elders, one way to spot those that potentially could become Elders, is to find one who's working for gospel reconciliation between others. An an, an elder takes the gospel realities and they bring them into the life of the church, into the life of individuals, over and over and over again. Knowing how deeply he had been forgiven by God. Paul was an agent of forgiveness in the relationships of others. I praise God for faithful elders in this church who are giving themselves to that, and I pray that God would be pleased to raise up many more. Leads to our second appeal. So not just, number one, an appeal to love. Number two, an appeal to the change that the gospel brings. Another way of saying it is an appeal to gospel transformation. An appeal to gospel transformation. And if I could say it another way, for those of us that are in or near broken relationships, it would be this. Embrace gospel change. Embrace gospel change. And so number one, act in love. Number two, embrace gospel change. 145 words into a 335-word letter before he ever mentions Onesimus. And the way he mentions Onesimus is very interesting. In verse 10, our English translations read this way, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. But in the Greek, Onesimus' name is at the end of the sentence. Paul writes this way to add some anticipation and some surprise. I mean, I can imagine Philemon in the midst of the church that's gathered there in his home, hearing this letter read, and you just walk through the first nine verses, and I imagine Philemon is just yes and amening this. Yes, I see the gospel has it. Yes, the gospel does this. By God's grace, you're encouraged at this. Yes, we see that uh, 
you're not going to order me to do something. You're going to, for love's sake, appeal for me to do something. And I can just see Philemon nodding. Yes, yes, this, I'm, in a, I'm in agreement. I'm in agreement. And then the word at the end of that sentence in verse 10. That's when the record scratches. When Onesimus' name is dropped. I appeal to you for my child, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. Philemon's thinking, there's someone else who's come to faith, just like me, through the ministry of Paul. Yes and amen. And he says, Onesimus. The broken relationship would have been so fresh in his mind. The wrongs that Onesimus had done to Philemon would have been near to his memory. The Roman law would have been ever close to him. At, at the time, it was, it was completely acceptable. It was a common practice for escaped fugitives to be put to death or, other severe, or be uh, sentenced to other severe forms of punishment. Onesimus was not helpful. He was not a a model bond servant when he left and ran away. Verse 18, leading us to believe he stole and ran away from Philemon. And so for this news to come across Philemon's mind, wait a minute, Onesimus is a Christian? Onesimus, a Christian? Paul then unpacks the change that the gospel has brought about in Onesimus. Onesimus, think about this, Onesimus the slave has come to a prison to find Paul where he finds freedom. I mean, the stunning ways and purposes and plans of God. Only God could take a slave, bring him to another prison, and there find true freedom. Verse 11, Paul does a wordplay on even the name Onesimus. The name means useful. It was a name that was given to many slaves and bond servants. And what Paul says in verse 11 is that before he left, he wasn't Onesimus to you. But since coming to me, he's now Onesimus to you and to me, Philemon. Paul sends him back, verse 12. I have sent him back to you in person. That is, sending my very heart. Roman prison looked nothing like prison as we know it. If you didn't have people from the outside bring you food, you would starve in prison. If you didn't have people from the outside bring you clothing, you would freeze in prison. And Onesimus has given himself to caring for the aged Paul while in prison. And Paul sends him back. And in sending him back, Paul makes clear that he's not really getting rid of a problem. No, he's come to love Onesimus. So much so that he wished he could keep him. So that they could continue to work in gospel partnership. So verse 13 says, I wish to keep him with me. 
so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. Yet Paul doesn't act on presumption. Paul doesn't say, yes, uh, we'll, we'll see next week. Paul essentially looks at Philemon and says, earthly speaking, you owe your salvation to God's work through me. And so there's a debt there. And instead of just presuming on that debt, Paul wants Onesimus to go back and to be reconciled. He wants to go back and to see the power of the gospel put on display through a man who has every earthly right to kill this man, to forgive him, and to embrace him, and to love him. As a pastor, I understand something of the affection that Paul writes about to see someone grow remarkably in grace. To see someone come from being a hater of God to a lover, or even a child of God to a mature man and woman. There's something about watching someone grow in grace that builds a deep affection in our hearts for one another. Which is why a church that's, that's uh, able to participate and enjoy community is a church that is faithful to make disciples because making disciples produces God-wrought affection for one another. One of the great joys of being a pastor is seeing this happen, seeing change take place in someone's life. And perhaps you're here and you're thinking, wait a minute. So I'm, I'm, supposed to, I'm just supposed to believe that there was a man who was a slave, was disinterested in the things of God. He goes and he finds Paul in prison and Paul shares news, good news with him. And that changes everything about this man? Yes. That's what the Bible puts on display over and over and over again. That as a message goes forth and people submit to it and believe in the Christ that the message is proclaiming and making clear that they change. Fundamentally, they change. This man was a slave. And, and the greatest enslavement wasn't merely in his relationship with Philemon. It was his enslavement to his sin. And the Bible makes, it, makes this clear over and over again. That God comes to us who are sinners, who have separated ourselves from Him. He comes to us in great love and in great mercy. So that we would be slaves no more. So that we would find freedom from our sin. And we would find freedom from the ultimate enemy of death and so that we would find freedom for the first time in our lives from out of the womb that we would not have to be centered on self that we would be able to live our lives as though God indeed were God and we would be considerate of others 
There is a freedom that is found in the perfect life in the death as a substitute and in the bodily resurrection of Jesus the Christ. However hard you, you try to run, however far you try to run, however hard you try to work to beat that enemy, to break those chains of sin and death, you will never, you will never find freedom in your works. You will never find, find freedom in where you run to. Unless you run to Christ. Long before Onesimus had a need to be reconciled to Philemon, he had a need to be reconciled to his maker. And perhaps you're here, and your life is littered, or you, you maybe just have one, but your life is littered, or you have a broken relationship. It would be easy to sit through this sermon and to think, okay, I need to act in love. I need to embrace gospel change. Maybe I don't even know what that means. Like, These are the things I need to do. And can I just tell you that the place to begin, that if you are not turning from your sin and trusting in Christ, the finished work of Christ, the place to begin is not with a list of things to do, but a standing before your maker. You have to be able to stand before God, not guilty. And you can't do that through your works. You can't do that by denying your problems. You do that by owning your problems, stopping your works, and running to the one who has worked for you. And that's when you will find there's a sufficiency, there's an enoughness in Jesus where I'm free to stop working. I'm free to stop hiding. I'm free to stop trying to manipulate this and that in order to to find something that I can't produce. The good news this morning is that if you have yet to bow your knee, there is a freedom and a forgiveness that is found in Christ alone that will change everything about you. It will cost everything in this life as you know it. And the Bible says you may even lose your life for this faith. But what you gain in gaining Christ is far greater than anything you lose, even if it's your life. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, if I can just plead with you, what we see physically in Onesimus is is such a signpost to the reality of who you and I are spiritually. We are enslaved, needing to be set free. And the the point of this is not to spiritualize Onesimus' slavery. This was a real historical event and interaction that took place But the point is to say there is a foundational slavery that each of us have that we are in need of being set free from. And the good news is that in Christ Jesus, we can be set free. And so would you this morning leave that old master, leave your sin because your sin lies to you and what God does, acts in love, your sin never does. Leave that old master. Turn from your sin. And trust in the finished work of Jesus alone. If you do that, it would be our joy to talk to you about what that means and what the next steps are. And so find someone in this room and say, can I talk more about turning from my sin and trusting in Christ? If you're watching online, reach out to our our church. It would be our joy 
to follow up with you in whatever way possible. Verse 16 shows us that this change meant that Onesimus is no longer to be regarded as a slave, but now he's to be regarded better than a slave. He's to be regarded as a brother in the Lord. Philemon had the freedom not to send Onesimus back to Paul, but Philemon did not have the freedom of viewing Onesimus as an alienated enemy. Salvation had changed him. What's interesting is that Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon not to say he should no longer be your slave. He doesn't send Onesimus back with any kind of outright uh, renunciation of the institution of slavery. But what he does, as we saw last week, it breaks down God dishonoring slavery from the inside. He sends him back and says, now this man, this man is to be your brother. This is the death blow to slavery. The gospel doesn't doesn't, uh, do away with social status. Colossians 3 that Charlie referenced earlier. A renewal in which there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, circumcised, uncircumcised. And he goes through and he still gives these categories. At the end of Colossians chapter 3, he'll say, you have uh, masters and slaves and husbands and wives. And Paul's not saying the gospel does away with all categories. No, Paul says, though, that the gospel means that we don't treat one another through the primary lens of those categories. Whoever loves God the Father must love their brother and sister. And this family language may seem corny or it may seem fake to you, but this is the experience of the people of God. It's the experience of the people of God to look at one another and because of our unity to say, ah, I grew up, I grew up never having a brother. And yet in Christ, I have brothers that I don't don't even, it pales in comparison to even some of my earthly biological relationships. We've been given the same heavenly father and you too have a new family if you are in Christ. Can't you see how and why this matters in broken relationships? Oftentimes, the only perspective that we have in our mind, the perspective that's the greatest to us in the moment, is what someone's offense against us is. And yet when we stop to remember not only the offense, but when we stop to remember the change that the gospel has made in their lives... We should be overwhelmed, even in difficult situations, that the grace of God is at work in them. I mean, Paul models this in 1 Corinthians. It is a completely jacked up church. And yet, in in this letter, all throughout this letter, Paul laces rich truths about who they are in Christ. Paul's just modeling for us the reminders that the biggest... The the thing that should consume our view most is not the offense against us, but the work of God in them. 
What does the gospel require when pain and bitterness and anger and resentment and apathy sets in? So many counseling situations, I have watched it before my eyes. Relationships come limping in, having lost sight of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then when that reality comes back in view, the iron door that's oftentimes around cold hearts begins to crack. The gospel frees us. Our ability to forgive others is tied to the knowledge of ourselves having been forgiven. Human reconciliation arises from and points to our reconciliation with God. The more you understand just how much mercy God has given you, the more merciful you become to others. And none but Jesus can help can, can do helpless sinners good. My reaction is not what they did to me. My reaction must be based in what Christ has done for me and what Christ has done for them. And so when I extend love to my sister, it's not because my sister is worthy. It's because I am a lavished recipient of divine love. When I extend kindness to a brother, it's not always because he's deserving of kindness. It's because I am a lavished recipient of God's kindness. This is what family interactions are based on. That both parties are lavished recipients of grace upon grace that Christ has poured out on his people. How we treat others is based more than, uh, on more than uh, nothing else than on how we have been treated by God. Brings us to our last appeal. Number three, an appeal to God's sovereignty. An appeal to God's sovereignty. If I could say it another way, for those of us that are in or near broken relationships, trust in God's sovereignty. Trust in God's sovereignty. We see this in verse 15 where Paul writes to Philemon and says, For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever. Paul puts in the category of Philemon's mind that all of this, that all of the defrauding, the running away, the time spent away, now the return back, that all of this was the product of supernatural, sovereign design guiding Onesimus from Philemon to Paul and now from Paul back to Philemon. The, the, the verb there was separated. It's written in what has come to, to be called the divine passive. The divine passive, it's the implication that God is the one doing the action. That it was God who separated Onesimus from Philemon. Paul is saying that the temporary separation was orchestrated by God that would lead to an eternal togetherness. The temporary separation between Onesimus and Philemon was orchestrated by God that would lead to an eternal togetherness. And this reflection may help Philemon forgive what needs to be forgiven. Paul's reminding us as we read this that we're not merely floating on the sea of chance, but that we are held afloat underneath God's gracious and wise governing 
providence, his sovereignty, that he has the power to do all things and his providence, that he's good in the working of all things out for the good of his people and for his glory. I just encourage you to read Job 42, specifically Job 42.2. Look at Daniel 4.35. Read Isaiah 46 verses 9 and 10. Job 42.2, Daniel 4.35, Isaiah 46.9 and 10. And just see kind of a picture of God describing his sovereignty. That he has the power and he's good in all that he does. And none of his purposes can ever be thwarted. And so there is an opportunity that's staring Philemon in the face. And perhaps you know this opportunity where you're most aware of the sin that has been, been committed against you. And Paul just says, Philemon, remember this. God's sovereignty has not wavered or diminished through all of this. In fact, he may be the one who has been orchestrating it all. It would have been easy for Philemon to think, why me? Why is this happening now? And that's probably a question that we ask often. Why does it seem that God isn't showing up? Why my health? Why my singleness? Why my bad marriage? Why my infertility? Why the broken relationship? Why the deep loneliness? His timing and his ways can seem so irrelevant and inconvenient, or perhaps from our limited perspective, his timing and his ways can seem completely wrong. His timing confounds our ways. And what Paul reminds Philemon is even in the midst of a difficult, broken relationship, even in the midst of your trial, his purposes have not been thwarted. In fact, he's leveraging trial to accomplish his purposes. Paul reminds us then as we watch this that when trials come, there are critical facts that are known only to God. And yet our pride insists on explanations and answers. And when we don't get that, our pride can oftentimes, oftentimes lead us then to self-righteous anger against God or we wallow in self-pity. And yet God in his kindness allows trials to persist because more than anything else, trials transform us. Anything that steals our joy, that ruins our relationship, that sucks, out, that sucks life out of life, that's stubborn pride. And do you know what creates dependence on the Lord? Do you know what creates perspective of the Lord? Trials. Augustine said, God wants to give us things, but oftentimes he finds that our hands are full and there are nowhere to put them. And so, do you know what trials do? Trials removes the things from our hands that would have harmed us had we continued to hold on to them. And oftentimes, gives us something greater, mostly himself. The Bible is full of stories like this. The book of Genesis climaxes in the story of Joseph 
when they realized that the, the ruler is the brother that they threw into the pit, they're terrified. They're terrified. And in Genesis chapter 45, verses 4 through 8, this is what we read. Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in this land for two years, and there are still five years with which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his household and a ruler over all the land of Egypt. This is what Joseph says in Genesis 50, 20. What you intended for evil, God allowed and brought about good. And the same God who acted in Genesis 45 in those ways is acting here in Philemon's day. He's the same God who was active when the disciples betrayed Jesus and when the soldiers were nailing him to the cross. Is what they did sin? Yes. Will they be responsible for it? Yes. But is that the end of the story? No. It is not the end of the story. This is captured well in an old hymn called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unsearchable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. And ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break. In blessings, yea, in blessings, in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be, will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err. And scan his work in vain. For God is his own interpreter. And he will make it plain. There are a lot of ideas about how to make this world a better place. And yet, they do not yield God-wrought, lasting, real transformation. And Christianity isn't a theory of how that can happen. Christianity is a reality that displays that it happens again and again and again. The gospel of Jesus Christ is how God intends to change. God intends this change to really happen. And so do you know that grace that is found through faith in Christ alone? Relational reconciliation is possible, brothers and sisters. Because of the work of Jesus, the gospel changes everything. And so let's not underestimate the power of the gospel.
Let's pray. God, would you grant us obedience as we think and turn to respond to your word? I pray that you would remind us of relationships in which we should and can and must act in love and help us rightly embrace gospel transformation and gospel change. And in all things, may we trust in your sovereignty. And so in this moment of silence, would you speak to us? We want to be changed. We do ourselves and this world no favors walking out the same way that we walked in. And so help us. Speak to us, we pray.